Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbley, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have two callers on the line. Hi, Tom. This is Larry Yeager. Oh, Larry, wonderful to have you on the line. I'll just bring in our second caller. Hey, uh, this is uh, Ed from uh, Indiana. Good to talk to you, Ed. So normally we have news and notes, but I just have a a couple of quick notes. The next episode, Friday, September 19th at 8 p.m. Pacific, is Publicize Your Project, which I believe was submitted by Scott Davis, former Biota Live participant, and maybe he'll even be on the call next week, but it's a topic that's very important to artificial life developers. And three quick shout-outs before we get on with this evening's show. Firstly, with regards to the CERN switch-on, people may wonder what the connection is with regards to artificial life. Well, former Biota participant Pedro Ferreira works at CERN. He's also developed with Noble Ape, and he's an extraordinary fellow, so I'd like to send a shout-out to Pedro. I had word from Steve Graham this week that he survived Hurricane Gustav, and he seems to be fighting back with a chainsaw. I can't really understand why Channel 4 in the UK doesn't sponsor a reality TV show with regards to Steve Grant surviving in Louisiana. But anyway, Steve will uh, participate in a future Bios Live when he releases his new game, so a shout-out to Steve. And finally, Gerald de Jong, who is now writing for the Sun blog. And the topic for this evening, Larry, you're the topic for this evening. I feel on the spot. I was thinking about doing this, uh, how to possibly introduce you in a way which uh, would be meaningful and also get into some of the meaty topics that I'd like to discuss this evening. So what I'm going to do is actually pass the listeners back to your website for a kind of more detailed introduction to who you are. But I was interested in a particular turning point in your life in the late 80s when you were working in films with Jim Henson and George Lucas, and then you were invited to join the Vivarium Project at Apple. Can you describe this period of time and what led you towards artificial life? As you say, I was working at a place called Digital Productions and doing computer graphics special effects for for films. And indeed, we did the opening title sequence for a film called Labyrinth, and uh, we featured this owl flying around in a void and interacting with mirrors and pools of water and so on. But uh, the folks at Apple Computer, uh, in particular, Alan Kay and Anne Marion, became aware of us. I'm not sure if it was through Labyrinth or not, but they came to us specifically to do a kind of animation of animals, of, of organisms in a simulated ecology. They were doing a really interesting thing. They were going to put together an ecology in the computer and have it simulated on an Evanston Sutherland flight simulator, which uh, you know was an incredibly powerful machine, a multi-million dollar computer that was very good at graphics and very, very fast graphics, and with the idea being that uh, they could simulate a graphical user interface of the future. Alan was always a firm believer in using the absolute most advanced tools you could today because by the time your research sees the light of day, that's what the public will have by then. So it's a very, very smart move. He's famous for saying the best way to to predict the future is to invent it, and that's what we were trying to do there. And certainly Polyworld came out of the Vivarium program, but you actually did quite a bit of work before you or I'm, I'm not really clear whether you're doing a lot of development prior to Polyworld or whether Polyworld was actually really the concluding work from the Vivarium program. Can you talk a little bit about that? The Vivarium program always did have the idea of this ecology in the computer, but really the focus for Vivarium, for Alan, Kay, and, and Anne, were to, um, to use that ecology as a forcing function 
for user interface design and improvement of education. The idea being, if you had a system, if you had a software programming environment, essentially, where you could describe the behaviors of all these individual agents and all the interactions between the agents and build up this entire ecology, but it was usable by kindergarten through sixth grade, uh, you know, elementary school children, you'd have something that by definition was extremely powerful and extremely easy to use. And so there was the idea that Alan, also uh, he's famous for his aphorisms actually, which uh, instead of uh, you can't have a, um, a goal for a research program, uh, that's like saying I'm going to now invent the flying buttress, uh, but you can have a direction. And so their direction was to go in, in towards this improved user interface and improved and powerful programming environment with a, a great user interface. So, but I just became interested in the underlying technology and uh, biology of such a, uh, a computational ecology. And Alan deliberately, willfully fostering an environment where you should study what you want to study and learn what you want to learn allowed me to go off to the very first neural network conferences, like the first two or three in a row that it came into existence, and the first neural information processing systems conference, NIPS, and the first artificial life conference. And you can probably guess, well, I was interested in all of the above, and specifically interested in how neural models could possibly model the brain, and then with the catalyst of going to that first Artificial Life Conference was just an amazing lineup of people with, with Richard Dawkins, Stuart Kaufman, and of course Chris Langton, and Don Farmer, and Steen Rasmussen, and Norm Packard, and, and, and on and on and on. It was truly a life-altering experience. I, I, I sat through that, listened to all the things they had to say, and said, well, okay, I know what I'm going to do now. I went back and proposed this crazy, uh, wild-eyed project to Alan. He read the, uh, the proposal I turned into him, and he said, good. Cool, go do it. And in fact, bought a Silicon Graphics Iris 240 GTX to put into my home in Laurel Canyon, and I just dove into the code for the next two years and, and didn't surface until I was headed off to the ALIFE 3 conference to present the Polyworld. So that's in 94, I guess. 94 is actually when the uh, proceedings ended up being published. But the conference itself was in 92, for what it's worth. But in terms of the, the transition, you moved from the Vivarium program to doing other kinds of research at Apple. But the thing that struck me, I mean, I started developing Noble 8 in 96, and certainly my early communications <laughs> with the folks at Apple was that they really got what artificial life was, as you've described, as a, a vehicle for things like user interface and also for aspects of processing and these kind of things. Can you describe what it was like working at Apple initially and, and what elements changed and stayed the same in, in your time at Apple? Oh, it really was a, a time of a lot of change. When I first went in, it was just about the time, let's see, I went there in 87, and that was about the time that Steve Jobs had just been forced out, and so the company was already going through some you know, very high-level changes. But at the time, the Advanced Technology Group is what they called the research group, and that's what I joined. That's what Alan was in. And it really was a thriving, really interesting research group. And with, Alan had just helped Apple order the, their Cray XMP supercomputer. And, of course, I had a lot of experience using a Cray XMP supercomputer at uh, Digital Productions right before that, and even before that for the computational fluid dynamics that I'd been doing before I went into computer graphics. And so I went and did a number of projects there. 
on the, using the Cray. It's where I sort of cut my teeth on neural networks uh, using that Cray. Terry Sinowski is a world-renowned figure in the area of neural networks and one of the co-founders of the NIPS conferences and so on. And he uh, had done something called NetTalk in the earliest days. It was a speech synthesis program. And I replicated that work, writing the code from scratch, the, uh, my, the first, my first backprop uh, neural network system, and, and added syllabic stress to it. So it, it, it sort of improved on it a little bit. And it was a really learning experience, really great environment. And um, there was a tremendous amount of work going on. I mean, a lot of the ideas that went into QuickTime came out of uh, the, this research group, the handwriting recognition. I guess it's worth saying one of the things that changed over the years was that research got less and less basic, less and less general purpose, and more and more applied. And in particular, after I had done Polyworld, I you know, was basically asked, is this going to ship in a product in two to three years? And I had to be honest and say no. So I was kind of politely asked, could I do something that would be shipped in a product before terribly long? And so I went off and did handwriting recognition, which took advantage of the neural networks that I'd been applying in Polyworld and, and particularly the backprop neural networks I'd been experimenting with previously on the Cray and turned it into what became the print recognizer in the Newton, the first genuinely usable handwriting recognition system generally claimed, and what is now, in fact, Inkwell in Mac OS X. So as it became more and more focused, more and more applied, in fact, oh, I'm trying to remember the precise year, but it, it got to the point that ultimately the advanced technology group finally was disbanded entirely. I could have stayed at Apple at that time. The Newton group uh, was still in existence, and they were asking me to stay and saying, you know, come Was on. it 95? That's about right. That's yeah. about right. Uh, 1995. And, uh, but I, at the time, Apple was giving really, really amazing severance packages. So to be honest, I, I took my severance bonus and, and left Apple for a little while, and uh, I hoped sincerely that I could license my own software from Apple and st do a startup based on handwriting recognition, but they wouldn't let go of the intellectual property. So ultimately, I ended up going back to Apple, and, and, and all, all total, I was with the company for about 18 years. Towards the end, Steve Jobs came back, and just as the company was really, truly going down the tubes, and obviously turned it around rather dramatically, and so I saw the resurgence. But one of the ways he turned it around was an extreme focus on what we can build and ship now. And so research is still not a big part of Apple. I mean, I've worked with four generations of engineers at Apple now, and some of them are in their early 20s. <laughs> and what strikes me with regards to the folks that come through Apple is they wouldn't go to a company like Microsoft in some regard. They wouldn't go to a startup. There are things that they like about Apple still. But there is also, as you say now, a kind of hyper-pragmatism. But they still seem to get what artificial life is. When you came back to Apple, was there an internal understanding of Polyworld? Did they know who you were in an artificial life context? I don't think so. I, honestly, after about 92, what I wanted most to do with my life was more artificial life research. But what I did with my life was handwriting recognition. And, uh, I mean, it got to the point that when I rejoined Apple, the purpose was, in fact, to take that technology that had been shipped in the Newton and put it into Mac. At the time, we were just transitioning from Mac OS 9 to Mac OS 10, and in fact, we implemented a complete solution in Mac OS 9 
got it to alpha level readiness, actually a very, very high quality alpha. We, we pretty much eliminated all known bugs, pretty much a good beta. And then marketing said, no new features on nine. <laughs> so it was back to the drawing boards and, and do it all over for OS 10, which is very different underneath, of course, being, being BSD Unix. And, uh, in fact, I mean, and then I ended up doing so much low-level detailed work, it wasn't even really handwriting recognition anymore. I, I redesigned the mouse event for Mac OS X in order to get the right stuff out of the tablet and into the operating system. So it was really low-level stuff at that point. Um, it was still it was a great intellectual challenge, and doing that, I had to touch every level of the system in order to make it work properly. But at all this time, a decade, a little over a decade, I had been looking for ways to get the artificial life work funded again and get back to that, which is how I ended up at Indiana University. I was so grateful that they had this school of informatics forming and being very interdisciplinary and very aware of uh, my previous work to my great astonishment and pleasure and um, were interested in this, this comp- forming this complex systems group that had as a, one of its components artificial life, and they let me come on board there and, and, and get back to the research that I've been trying to do for a very long time. Well, before we talk about that, I'm interested in exploring a bit more with regards to Polyworld. Obviously, I mean, it was at Apple. It was, was the source owned by Apple for any period of time? You, actually, you're talking to one of the few people <laughs> in the history of the company who managed to get some source code over the firewall and out the door. I spoke to all the appropriate people, got all the appropriate permissions, and was able to release the source code for Polyworld Back in 1992, when I when I went to the A-Life conference, I was able to say, and by the way, the source code is here on this FTP server. The web, as as it exists today, didn't wasn't even around really then, and uh, so it wasn't like I put up a web page, but I was able to give an FTP address and say, here's the source code, and which obviously has turned out to be a very good thing to have done for myself now as well, since I'm no longer with Apple, but I have my source code and have extended it greatly, and it is open source. It's on SourceForge. It sounds like you were doing open source before it was open source. I honestly am not sure when the first people started you know, making a big push for open source, but I've, I've certainly managed to accomplish it uh, in the early days. So in terms of folk listening who may have uh, looked at Polyworlds briefly or are not familiar with the project, can you give a, a potted introduction to it? In brief, it's a computational ecology. Inside this ecology are uh, a lot of agents, little trapezoidal agents running around. Everything they do consumes energy, and uh, so uh, just moving, turning, eating, mating, these primitive behaviors all consume energy. And also, all those behaviors are driven by a neural network, and every time step of activation of the neural networks and for every synapse involved, there's an additional cost, additional energy consumption. So basically, they then have to go out and find and eat food. They can also find and eat, they can find and kill and eat other agents. And uh, so there's natural predator-prey relations fall out of it. And what drives evolution in this system are those neural networks. The wiring diagram of those brains is encoded in the genome of the agents, and the key thing that evolves over time in Polyworld are the wiring diagrams of these brains. And the, the, the goal is, is really and truly to sort of approach artificial intelligence by the vehicle of artificial life and kind of work my way up this 
intelligence spectrum from the simplest possible cognitive agents all the way up to, you know, advanced intelligence at some point, one hopes. And the neural networks grow, don't they? I mean, is the limiting factor with regards to the size of the neural networks just the amount of energy the agent can consume? There is, with that penalty for, uh, you know, basically a penalty for using, uh, consuming additional energy for a larger brain, there's an evolutionary pressure to use sort of the smallest brain that will solve the behavioral tasks of the agent in the world. And in fact, I'm, I'm in the process now of trying to quantify a careful characterization of the complexity of the dynamics of these neural networks using an information theoretic measure of complexity. I got to a certain point with these agents where in the early runs, in the early worlds I was building, the behaviors that were coming out, you could kind of point to them and go, oh, they're doing X. You could point to it and say they're, they're all running around the edge and that's where they find each other and they find mates and food by doing this one thing. Or there's the cannibals that all live close together and, and, and kill and eat each other. Or it, the very simple behaviors that you could kind of describe in a word or two. And then as I started getting more successful with these things, I started getting kind of foraging behaviors and swarming behaviors and behaviors where you'd look at the population of agents and there was a lot going on, more than you could actually characterize in this sort of artificial ethologist role that I'd been playing to that point. And I realized then that to take the next step, before I really did any more with the system, I needed a way to quantify what was going on. I wanted to move to statistical methods and in particular I wanted to know are these agents actually getting more intelligent? Are they actually getting more complex in terms of their neural dynamics? Enter Olaf Sporns, uh, Giulio Tononi, and Gerald Edelman, and Olaf Sporns being a frequent collaborator now and at Indiana University, they had come up with an information theoretic measure of complexity of neural dynamics, and they'd done some experiments, run some data. Um, Olaf had a MATLAB script that would calculate this for certain networks. Only with an artificial system like Polyworld could you really go after this metric in a consistent way. I can record the neural activation of every neuron at every time step for the entire life of an agent for all agents. <laughs> and I do that and then analyze those dynamics and have been able to show that in fact you know, complexity is increasing over evolutionary timescales, and in fact, I've been able to tease apart, run a null model version versus the natural selection version, and show that, uh, in fact, complexity is being driven up by natural selection under certain conditions. So now, I finally now have this ruler, this 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 quantitative metric that lets me say whether things are getting more interesting or not. And, and now the next step is to make it so that the range of things the agents can do in the world grows up. And I claim, my, my sincere hope is, that as the complexity, as the complicatedness of the environment and the environmental interactions and agent-agent interactions goes up, so too will their, their neural complexity, their intelligence. And the interesting thing with these kind of simulations currently is that they bend very heavily into things like anthropology and psychology fundamentally in a kind of abstract sense. And the thing that interested me about Polyworlds was as you're describing this level of complexity increasing to almost forming coherent societies, almost with their own kind of mythology and interaction behavior, which can't be observed, as you're saying, currently, but probably exists under there through this complexity. In terms of these kind of uh, anthropological characteristics of these simple societies. 
Have you also taken a high-level view with regards to studying what comes out of Polywalk? Well, like I say, for a good while, uh, I sort of just played uh, artificial ethologist. I sort of pretended I was, in fact, watching animal behaviors. But I, I, I don't want to anthropomorphize too much. I don't want to... It's easy to look at these things, and, and some, sometimes you can look at them and say, well, yes, they're swarming here. And I can understand why that's a good behavior, because as long as the bunch of them are doing it, well, they can always easily find mates. But as long as the swarm drifts, as they deplete one food supply, they drift over to a new food supply. And you can think about it logically. I don't think they're thinking about it logically. These are very simple organisms. These are organisms with less than 300 neurons, basically. So we're talking, okay, C. elegans uh, worms have 302 neurons. So I'm kind of just barely at the level of worms. Now, the, the saving grace, in a way, is that I don't have to have anything like an autonomic nervous system. I don't have to do a lot of maintenance of the, the body uh, homeostasis and, and the uh, behaviors that the thing can, can undertake have one neuron to go to move forward, one neuron to turn. So they can devote a whole lot more neurons to sort of uh, the complicated internal dynamics of the system than the C. elegans, I suspect. But um, nonetheless, they aren't writing theses and figuring out how to set up civilizations just yet. In terms of isolation, both genetic and epigenetic effects of isolation, have you run two divided components of the polyworld simulation and then put the two different groups back together to see if they are similar or if they repel each other? Have you done these kind of studies? Not precisely, although that is certainly something I've long thought would be an interesting thing to do. Is like I do have, I deliberately built in the ability to put barriers in the world that can separate populations, isolate populations. It's important, I think, ultimately to go for speciation and arms races and all the things that we see in natural ecologies. I want to bring to bear uh, in here. But uh, one thing I have done is use those barriers to mostly isolate some populations, but leave a little gap just on one side. And indeed, the behaviors differed from population to population. They weren't enormously different. They were mostly just like the main thing that I could see from the outside, at least, and I never went back and did any other kind of analysis with that system except just to stare at it. But the, the differences that were visibly obvious because the way I color code their behaviors in their bodies was you could see that some groups were heavily expressing their fighting behavior and always had their mating behavior turned on. And so they had a high red component, high blue component, and they were kind of purplish. Uh, another group had would only intermittently express the behavior, but uh, the mating behavior, but were always fighting, always fighting. They were, they were red. Another one were like always mating, and they weren't fighting at all. They were just basically blue. And then what you would see is that these different domains, kind of almost all do of one domain would be approximately one color. But then over long time periods, you'd see at those gaps in the barriers, you would see uh, some mixing. You'd see one strategy invading the other, and you'd see it gradually take over. And over a long, long period of time, this was one of the longest runs I ever made back in the old days, you would see an, an entire colony change their strategy gradually to one of the other strategies, and then you'd see that strategy adopted by the next colony, and then the third colony would have dropped yet the other strategy. So it was kind of like, it really was kind of like a distributed tit-for-tat, 
you know, in the iterated prisoner's dilemma problem, the best solution is to basically do what the other guy did last time. And that's what they were doing. They were all kind of doing what the other guy did, and that that seemed to work best in here. In terms of interdisciplinary feedback, and this, I guess, is a component of open source as well, what kinds of users have, have played with Polyworld, and what kind of feedback have they given you? There are about eight or nine developers who've been putting some time and effort into the source code and, 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 and have you know, really been a tremendous help. I'm an, a, a big proponent of open source, both from the provider of the source code and the consumer of the source code and, and, and the consumer of the intelligent resources that can be brought to bear that way. There are a couple of places that have talked about, well, that have set up Polyworld on their local systems and have been considering using it for studying various evolutionary biology questions that they have in mind. I haven't seen any technical papers come out of that yet, so I'm not sure I, I'm not sure how far that will get. I just I don't know yet. I do have a couple of collaborations uh, just started up after the uh, the most recent artificial life conference, Art- artificial life 11 in Winchester, UK, with well, see, um, Anil Seth at uh, Sussex has this causal density measure of the complexity of uh, network dynamics. And, and, and we're looking at applying that to the polyworld brains and comparing it to the way Tononis Born's Edelman complexity measure, what it has to say about the, the, the dynamics of these agents. And then uh, Niha I at Max Planck and uh, Daniel Polani at University of Hertfordshire. I've been talking with them uh, and have provided them with a little bit of data to apply a um, causal information flow, uh, another measure of the uh, complexity of, of neural dynamics and network dynamics. And Polyworld happens to generate an awful lot of interesting data of an evolved system that sort of has to be evolutionarily and behaviorally competent. And we already have one means of looking at the complexity of those dynamics. So we now have the opportunity to, to look at a couple more. And in fact, a, 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 another whole research area that I'm just looking to open up is uh, to then apply some of the standard network theory, network science measures of the, the metrics that people use to describe network architectures and see, look for correlations between those and these dynamical complexities we're able to calculate. Maybe we can actually get to the point that we can simply look at one of these networks and just look at its architecture, just look at its wiring diagram and figure out how complex it's going to be without even have requiring it to live its life. But uh, that's, that's still sort of pie in the sky. We're, there's a lot of research to be done there yet. 